Nobody covers dog sledding like mushing from First Paw Media. Our team of athletes, volunteers, race organizers, and mushers like Robert and Michelle Forto brings you closer to the sport. If it's happening, we are there. Live from the qualifying races in January and February, the Iditarod in March, and in the summer, mushing takes you on the road with our team and trail tour. We connect you with a history of the sport, in-depth interviews with a top mushers, and great storytelling and breaking news all year long. Follow on mushing.com. Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto from Dog Works Radio and you are listening to our mushing radio segment today. And we are joined by guest Brenda Mackey calling in from the Two Rivers Fairbanks, Alaska area to talk about her sled dogs, her racing career, and much more. Here's the show. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto and you're listening to Mushing Radio here on KVRF. 89.7 in the Matsu Valley, RadioFreePalmer.org is our live streaming site. And you can find us over on Apple Podcast. Just search for DogWorks Radio. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the like. Just search for DogWorks Radio there as well. Calling in from the Fairbanks, Alaska area is Brenda Mackey. Brenda, how's it going? Hey, everybody. I'm doing good, Robert. Thank you for Having joining a little us bit of today. Snow Can up you here introduce in this morning? Awesome, awesome. Can you introduce yourself, Brenda? Tell us who you are and what you're all about, please. Uh, well, my name is Brenda Mackey, as Robert said, and um, I was born into the sport of mushing. I started mushing when I was about three years old in my first one dog race at three. Um, from a long line of people who have been mushing for, for quite a long time, my grandpa moved up from New Hampshire when my dad was six. And I was just kind of intrigued by dog mushing and got the family started in it. And my dad and his siblings started running dogs, junior races when they were kids, and just really fell in love with the lifestyle and, and continued it. And then it's just become a family tradition, so to say. Awesome. Well, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to our show know the Mackey name for sure, so we don't need to talk a lot about that, but I definitely am interested in finding a little bit about your guys' sort of family history with mushing and yours in particular. So you said you ran your first race at three years old, is that right? Yeah, that's right, the one dog class, me and my dog Fritz. Spritz. He was a, so, yeah, Spritz. He was kind of a funny dog that, you know, was on my dad's team and had been retired, and he became my buddy and my, my first dog. Awesome. So growing up in the sport, uh, how did that work into your sort of social life? You know, and, and the reason I ask is my daughter grew up in the sport as well, running races when she was, you know, just out of just out of diapers, so to speak, and then ended up running junior Iditarod and whatnot afterwards. But as soon as she went off to college, she was ready to say, oops, I'm done with this. 
I've done this my whole life. I've got other things to do. How was your thought process growing up as a kid involved with the family sport, so to speak? Well, you know, I've definitely seen what you're talking about with a lot of Mushers kids growing up in it. It's a lot of hard work. And I would say probably the majority of dog mushing kids do want to do something different. Um, you know, I I was in and out of public school. I ended up doing my last three years of high school on home correspondence and really didn't have a social life at all, so to speak. I mean, back then there was, you know, there was barely internet or anything like that, and let alone having that in your home to, to be connected with people. And then I was... Um, just really focused on the dogs all the time and and that's what I love to do and I just I just love being with them and interacting with them I liked training and developing our young dogs so that ended up kind of becoming my role in the kennel when I was about 14 um you know I just started running the yearlings and and I really have always liked developing young dogs and then as I got a little bit older I helped my dad, you know, train. He started running Quest about that time, around 96, and from and he had ran Iditarod for many years. And I just started helping him train the adults for that. And I just always loved the lifestyle, and it was just something I wanted to do. And then, um, oh, I started going to college when I was 23, so a little bit later in life. And um, And I had met Will by then, who's now my husband. And... Let's see. What did we do? We, I, I drove back and forth actually from my parents' kennel to school at UAF, which is an hour one way. So that became kind of hard to take classes and and train full time. Um, so I was pretty busy that year doing that, and then ended up moving to Fairbanks with Will, and um, we had about twenty three dogs, and we're just getting started. And then I got pregnant with our daughter, and we were both still in school and working, and it was just too much at the time. So. Um, the pups that we had bred at that time, my parents um, actually took in because we wanted to move closer to town and just decided that this would be the best thing. Really didn't know it was going to be so many years. It was eight years later, eight and a half years later, before we got dogs again. And and my parents, you know, they kept those dogs for all that time. And, and those became our first breeding dogs, dogs that we bred way back when. And, um, of course, they were older. And, and so then we got started again in 2011. And um, I've just been, that's what we've been focusing on ever since. And just a little more settled in life. Our daughter's older, so that makes it way easier than having, you know, a little kid and trying to trying to mush and all that. And uh, Will has a full-time job, so we stay really busy. So you had mentioned that you were out of it for eight years or so. Being involved with it your entire life and then taking a break, Obviously, it's sort of like riding a bike. You kind of fall right back into it, and everything seems second nature. But what was that that, uh, initial process like when you got back into it again, and then all of a sudden your life is uh, is surrounded by dogs again and all that is involved with the – with the chores and, you know, just the, the daily upkeep of that. It's in, and for folks that are, are listening, most of the folks that listen are either just fans or recreational mushers. So they don't sure. quite understand just how much of a process it is that it's a full-time job if you have a dozen or two dogs in the yard, isn't it? It's definitely a full-time job. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like a farm. It's seven days a week and, you need to be available to the dogs. They need to have someone available, that's for sure, 24 hours a day because you never know if a moose is going to come into your yard at night or a dog's going to get loose or something like that. So, yeah, you know, it's it's definitely a full-time job. And 
Um, I would say that even though I grew up doing it, had already ran the Yukon Quest and had a long history of it, it was in a way the first couple of years were almost like starting again. You know, we were really excited to get back into it. And we, I felt like I had to learn some stuff over again for sure. And then Will had never um, ran dogs seriously. He had a little bit. He actually um, had handled for Dan Turner uh, for the 98 Quest the year that I ran it. So our paths had kind of crossed it, and then we met doing tours on a glacier down in Juneau um, three years later. But, you know, so, but all in all, it was kind of like riding a bicycle. And I think what really helped me is just growing up with the quality of dogs that my parents had and setting the standard really high of this is exactly what I want, this is exactly what I'm looking for in building a race team and a competitive team. And so it started happening really quickly, almost a little too quickly, because we had quite a bit of success right off the bat. And uh, all of a sudden that was like a lot of pressure, you know. You put a lot of pressure on yourself to to try to maintain that. And so that, you know, that was kind of hard at first, I suppose. (laughs) Hard to explain, but, well, I can say my, my one of my first races back in was a 200-mile race, and it was mostly a yearling team. You know, they're just very young, unseasoned dogs, a couple two- and three-year-olds. And, you know, I had Lance Mackey, Uncle Lance, Hugh Neff, Phil Cotter, <clears throat> all these guys with a lot of experience. I'm like, you know, I'm just going to go around the course. And, and we ended up winning, and we won by like an hour and a half. And so then it's like, oh, oh, yeah, okay, we're on the right path. You know, so, right, right. Yeah. So one, one final question in regard. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead, Brenda. Go ahead. Oh, I was well, just going to ask one final question in regards to sort of the family dynamic of mushing. I know you had mentioned that your daughter is now a teenager. Where does she fit into the fold of, of this now that she is? you know, part of able to obviously run dogs uh, in, in, you know, in the junior races and then possibly in the future. What does she feel about the family farm or the family business, so to speak? Well, you know, she's been really involved. She likes to help go out and do dog chores, and she's really responsible now that she's older. Uh, if we need to go somewhere overnight training, you know, she's able to maintain the wood stove, go out and clean up poop and and give the dogs food and all that. Now, this year, she started high school, and I have noticed definitely a, a change in her socially, uh, where she's, like, not quite as interested in being out. So if you ask her to, you know, she'll help, but otherwise, she's not super motivated, and I think that's kind of a stage that <clears throat> that she's going through, and, and maybe that's, you know, I don't know um, if she'll want to do it when she's older, but we'll see. Right, right. So you had mentioned that you met your your soon-to-be husband at a job on the glacier, and now, of course, uh, you guys operate a very successful kennel together. Uh, was he a um, an accomplished musher before you met him, or was he um, no. just sort of an employee of the glacier at the time? No, he was uh, Will's from Northern California, and he has an uncle in Haines, and he kind of needed a a break after his first year of school just to to check out something different and he came up and spent the winter handling for a guy who was running the quest and it was um he actually came up to do some birch syrup work and then ended up with this dog handling job and and it wasn't actually in hands because you can't really train dogs there but outside of um 
a little town in Canada, and it was just very remote, very different from anything that um, he had ever experienced. And he just he loved the dogs and really liked the the peace and quiet of the lifestyle. And then um, those same people that own the the glacier, um, Alaska Icefield Expeditions, our excursions, they um, asked him to to come back to be a tour guide that year. And um, and we just met up there and. Uh, yeah, so no, he wasn't really an accomplished musher. And then that winter, uh, he did a lot of training with my dad and I, but uh, again, we were both going to school, and so it was more secondary, but, you know, still learned a lot. Yeah. And, and now so. he's he's doing very well. Uh, a couple of years ago, yeah. he won uh, a, mid, a mid-distance race or two. I believe it was the Connect 200 a couple of years ago. Is that right? Yep, he won the Connect 200. He's gotten second in the Connect 200. Um, he's won the Solstice 100 and done the tripod race and the Copper Basin, and he's won the um, Two Rivers 200 and also gotten second in the Two Rivers 200. And um, he was Rookie of the Year last year in the Copper Basin in his first 300 miler. So, yeah, he's Will's very athletic and very capable, and he's very good with the dogs and um, has the right kind of energy and know-how with them. So it just really falls into place. Doesn't mind the <laughs> the crazy lifestyle because there is a lot of stress and for him you know he's got two jobs because he works during the day and then you know he does a lot of his training at night or all train during the day or whatever but you know it's a it's a very very busy life for sure right right so you guys live outside of Fairbanks there uh real close to the um to the uh to the Yukon Quest Trail and the you know the Two Rivers Trails and whatnot that seems like an ideal area for a musher to run dogs. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what it's like to live in that portion of Alaska? You know, most people think about, you know, Anchorage or the Matsu Valley where the Iditarod is, and that gets a lot of press. But how is it up in your sure. neck of the woods? Well, it's generally a lot colder, and it's a drier climate, so when we get snow, it's usually not as wet. Um, uh, it's also darker, I suppose, by a little bit, but uh, it's definitely a, a major hub of dog mushing right where we're at. We live on a road called Baseline Road, which is like the main drag in two rivers, and pretty much if you're whatever direction you're coming from, you're going to you know, see like 7 to 11 teams a day on in this area. It's very, very busy, um, but there's a lot of diversity of trails. We have hills. We have Flats. We can go different directions all the time, so that's really nice to to have that diversity. It's really good for leader training because you're constantly doing something else. You have the option of of not just going the same way each time. Right. So you know, Brenda, yeah, I wanted to spend some time today. Uh, I wanted to really talk about your guys's breeding program. Uh, it's it's very interesting how you guys are planning so far into the future with your dogs and how that you breed up your pups and that sort of thing. Can you kind of give an overview of uh, what you expect out of a breeding and then we'll jump into some questions. Well, when they started breeding, it was really important to me to breed the dogs that I had grown up with, even though there are a lot of, you know, every year there's like a popular stud dog of the moment that everybody wants to breed and, um, I never got caught up in that. I always was really important to me to um, breed back to a dog named Commander, who was one of my dad's winning Yukon Quest leaders. Uh, he was a dog that I just 
I just really kind of fell in love with that dog. His um, sister, Cindy, um, was also a main leader for my dad, who was um, in lead when he won the quest. And uh, they just really had ideal personalities. Um, They had really good, tough feet, super appetites, just a lot of just everything you could ask for, really. And, um, And so most of our dogs go back to that. And so... Breeding has always been something that's interesting to me, and I actually bred my first litter when I was 13, so I was that 26 years ago, um, quite a long time ago now, and um, I've just always had an interest in it, and um, we are, you know, when we first started breeding, we thought, well, we're going to get a pool of dogs, and this is going to be our core team for running Iditarod, because that has always been my goal. And then the years go by so quickly, you know, and all of a sudden those first dogs, we have three now, and um, and they just turned six. So now we're looking kind of at the next generation and the next group as we get more um, settled and more able to, to focus on future racing goals. So... So with your, with your breeding program, you know, you hear sort of the both sides of it. You, you either wait until the dog is really established. You, you know, maybe they're, uh, they are finishers of the quest or Iditarod or something like that, mm-hmm. or they just have the genetic potential already in them. Is it a combination of two with you guys or one way or the other? Oh, it's definitely a, a combination for us. I think it's really interesting to look at bloodlines and pedigrees and, um, it's just like anything on paper, you know, you could match make a, a couple of people on paper, but it doesn't mean that they're going to have the right chemistry, you know. So it's sort of similar like that with dogs. Uh, you really, the genetics are proven and the dogs are proven and the pedigrees are good and stuff, but you also have to look at the performance of what's right in front of you and what's a better fit for you than maybe for someone else. Um, everybody likes a little bit different kind of athlete, you know, whether it's a little bit faster, a little bit slower. People have a lot of different goals. Um, so I guess we're looking a lot at that at both, for sure. Right. So when, you know, when, so when you're thinking about placing a dog with uh, an individual that has a team or whatnot, uh, how much emphasis goes into the choice? So if a person is a recreational musher versus somebody that is training for a big race like the Iditarod or the Quest, how do you choose for those, both of those individuals, especially if they don't know much about your dogs? Uh, well, I try to get to know the person a little bit, and that helps, um, you know, and just figure out what their needs are. You know, what are their long-term goals? I really put a lot of emphasis on um, placing dogs with people who aren't big breeders just because I don't want the bloodline spread around all over the place, and that happens pretty commonly. Um, so I'm pretty careful and selective. I also, um, you know, look for smaller kennels, you know, versus I'm not really interested in selling a dog to someone who has 80 to 100 dogs where the dog is just, um, you know, there for breeding purposes or you know, it's not going to have a forever home. So I'm pretty careful about about that. And because we do have a lot of interest, that, and that really helps, you know. And once you establish a reputation of, of selling dogs that, that people want, it really helps, you know. Right. So, again, Brenda, keeping our listener in mind, 
and say somebody calls you up and they are just that recreational musher, how do you explain to them that this is the right dog for them? You know, you often hear that this may be too much of a dog for your team or whatever. How do you explain that to somebody that doesn't know enough about either the dogs or the sport yet to make right decisions without a lot of input from the breeder? How do you explain that to the new guys? You know, I guess I've never said that to somebody. I've never said this is, you know, too much of a dog for your team. Um, I don't know. But if I think that or if someone is just getting started and they want young dogs, for example, I don't really think that's the best choice because they might not know how to develop them properly. Um, and a lot of people right. want puppies. And and so I just usually don't, don't tell them to drive the dog because I don't feel like it's a good fit, you know. So right. we do get a lot of questions from a lot of people um, all over the world. Some really um, interesting questions this morning. This woman from Norway was asking me, um, sent me a picture of a dog and asked, um, do you think my dog has Fetlock? And I thought, no, what in the world is Fetlock? I had to Google it. And, um, you know, so just funny stuff like that. But So just really trying to, to figure out what a person is looking for. That, and that makes right. the happiest dogs you know, the happiest dog. So. Right, right. You know, and that that's sort of one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on. I remember seeing a post from you or a comment or something on Facebook, and people were asking some pretty interesting questions. What are yeah. some of those questions about uh, that people often ask? Again, you know, no question is a bad question for folks to ask. But what are some of those more obscure questions that folks pose to you or ask to you, either in person, social media, or whatever? Um, on social media, sometimes people will just randomly ask me different things about medical issues that they feel their dog might be having. I'd say that one's really common. Um, or someone that's interested in racing will have questions about different things that happen at a checkpoint, you know, stuff like that. But for selling dogs, um, and I just had this conversation with Mike Santos, who came to our house and bought a dog recently, and and he's also uh, um, he has a lot of, does a lot of breeding and selling, so we were kind of having a laugh at some of the questions we get, and um, you know people often ask general things like how big are they and are they friendly and this sort of thing. Um, I feel like some of the questions that surprise me are um, does the dog pull, and all of our right. dogs, you know, we breed for a lot of drive, and so they just they just do pull right from from harness break, you know, and so that's that's a pretty easy one. But so that always surprises me. But then sometimes I see people's videos and their dogs aren't pulling, and I think, well, maybe that's why you know they're <laughs> asking because they've gotten dogs that that don't pull. Um, I encourage people to ask a lot of questions. Some of my friends, you know, I'm just like, man, ask a lot of questions about eating, about the parents, are they you know, different traits that they might have. Um, yeah, really a random assortment of questions. And So how often, how often do uh, the looks questions come into play? You know, people, uh, especially in the United States, we're definitely, um, mm-hmm. you know, sight-oriented yeah. first. How often does that come into play into a person's decision over other things like uh, genetic history or the ability to pull or whatever, how many times do they say, oh, I need a gray dog with, with both ears that are pointed and, you know, 
uh, a mask on his on his face. How often does that come up? I'm glad you brought that up because you know what? That's something I wasn't thinking of. But that is actually something that happens a lot, and not even just with people who are getting started. Where you think that's more of a beginner type question, but even people that have been doing it for like 10 years, they have dogs that look a specific way. And even though they're not necessarily going in the direction they want to, they want something different, they still want dogs that look similar because that's what they're used to or an idea they have right. in their head. So I'd say that happens all the time. And whether it's people coming over to your dog lot and saying, oh, wow, this one's amazing based on looks, or we have people look at our um, our dog tech site and write to us and like dogs that aren't even for sale, but they just really like the look and they want that dog. <laughs> so, and it's funny right. they won't ask any right. other questions. Like they just they want that dog. So yeah, I'd say that just so like anything next... in America, the looks really, yeah. Right, looks do matter, don't they? Uh, we're talking oh, yeah. to Brenda Mackey today here on Mushing Radio, calling in from the Fairbanks area. We're going to get her website and things here towards the end of the show. But, uh, Brenda, I would like for you to talk a little bit about your puppy training with your dogs uh, to our listeners. I love seeing the videos of the pups out, uh, free running with the, do- with the other pups and, you know, free running with the bigger dogs. How is that important for the development of a good sled dog? And I'm sure a lot of folks would say, especially if they aren't familiar with sled dogs, is how do you keep them from running off and not coming back? Well, we start with them when they're really little, so they just naturally stay with us. And then when they get bigger, they do start to outrun us, but they don't you know, take off running down random trails, they might play in the woods a little bit. But what they do is when we start heading home, they, you know, as much as they love getting out of the pen, they want to run home as fast as they can. And it's because we condition them to as soon as we get home, they get fed in the pen. So it's usually an evening meal. So they'll have their breakfast. And then throughout the day, you know, we're doing other chores and things. And then in the afternoon and early evening, we take them out. Well, they know it's dinner time. So they want to, they want to run back home and eat. And So that's when, you know, we go from walking to riding the bike to using the ATV so that we can keep up with them. But they're a good little pack. You know, we've we've done it every year that we've been back in dogs. And um, we start bringing them in the house when they're just three days old. So really a lot of hands-on exposure and just working with them a lot every day. I think it really helps develop their, their neurons. It socializes them really well. They get used to cars and horses and all kinds of stuff you see out here and other people and we've bought dogs from people before who you know don't do that sort of thing um that weren't socialized and it it is definitely a big difference for sure you know just in their their behavior not as confident right and it definitely helps out in the long run when they do move on from your kennel you don't have to worry about fighting and biters and all that sort of thing which is definitely a no-no out on the mushing trail, you don't want your dog sure. to be, as they call them in mushing, alligators, uh, as alligators, they snap nope. as they're going down the trail. Right. Okay, Brenda, we have about four minutes left, and I have a couple of more questions for you, and then we'll figure out how folks can find you on social media and the like. My next question is, what have you seen as a major change since you've been involved with this? You had mentioned you started out at, at, at you know as a toddler, and here you are, uh, doing your own thing years later, what do you see in the biggest shift in mushing in in your life within the sport? 
Well, I think just like the rest of the world, a lot of um, changes in technology, um, a lot of roles, you know, these days when I get around, it's much, much different than it used to be. Um, I think that's a big uh, strategical game changer, or could be. Um, the cost of it is much, much higher. You know, a, a really high-end bag of dog food used to be $30. Now it's $70. And, you know, right. I, I think it's gotten a lot more expensive to do it right. You know, you could uh, feed your dogs less quality type of food and that sort of thing, but then you're not really doing them justice. So to really, to really do it right, um, you have to spend a lot of money on it. And uh, I guess it's kind of an unfortunate in a way for a lot of people, but, you know, you just really have to pour your entire self into it and basically be willing to, to go into debt and to take some gambles, you know, like go into debt and go to a race right. and hope to win it back, so to speak. So I think right. that uh, technology and money are two things that have really um, become, they have changed a lot. Yeah. So my next, my next question is what's next for you guys? Uh, are you signed up for any races this coming winter? Uh, what are your plans in, uh, you know, two, five, ten years from now uh, with your kennel and your dogs? Uh, well, right now we're both signed up for the Connect 200. And so we'll have a puppy team and an adult team for that race. And then we're hoping to go to the Testamina. Excuse me, it's kind of um, you never know if that was going to happen. It didn't happen for three years in a row. And then last year they had it. Uh, so we're, we're hoping to go to that one. And if they don't have the Testamina, um, either one of us are going to do the Willow 300. I really liked that race. It was super fun. I loved the trails and the people. And just it was a, really a fun race. And uh, Will kind of wants to run it. My dad's running it, so it'd just be kind of a, a family event, you know. Um, and right. just kind of playing it by ear, working with a lot of younger dogs right now. and um, So we're just kind of going with the flow. And then hopefully and in a couple of years we'll be in Iditarod. Well, Will that be you really or like, Will or both? He would like to eventually run it, but I'd probably run it first. So, Excellent. Yeah. Yep. Is there is there a tinge of competitiveness there? Uh, no, you know, we're not really competitive with each other. Um, I know a lot of couples that, that do get that way. Uh, we're both really happy just to – we both look at it as a team effort. And I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but it really is a huge team effort. And for us, it's about the dogs and getting the dogs to their best ability and putting them on that platform. And we're just the people managing it and able to do it, you know. So it's not really about – him or me or you know it's just it's about the dogs and and bringing them to that level if that makes sense that makes that makes because i know that when i watch will book. race i i feel like i love watching will race it's very exciting and i know he feels the same when he's watching me race too because it's a that's awesome well Brenda, it's a huge endeavor we're together just about out of time we're just about out of time here brenda i want to make sure that folks can can find you on uh, on social media. You got an awesome Facebook page uh, that where you show all sorts of pictures and uh, dogs that you have available and follow ups and all that. How can folks follow you guys both on the internet and on social media? Uh, Facebook, Instagram, our website is MatthewsDistanceDogs.com, and then we also have um, Dog Tech where we showcase all of our dogs' pictures and pedigrees and. It's just www.dogtech.com under Mackey's Alaskan Distance Dogs. 
Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us today. Get out there and enjoy the trails, and we'll talk again soon, okay? Okay, sounds good, Robert. Thank you. On behalf of my guest today, Brenda Mackey, this is Robert Forto. We will talk to you guys next time. Goodbye. Did you know that Alaska Dog Works trains service dogs for those in need throughout North America? Each and every service dog that is trained through the Lead Dog Service Dog Program and Michelle Forto and her team has an individual training plan. We train for autistic, mobility, psychiatric, and PTSD for our soldiers for service work. If you know of someone that may need a service dog, please take a moment and check out Alaska Dog Works on social media and at alaskadogworks.com. If you like our podcast, there are a few things you can do. You can take a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all of our DogWorks Radio sponsors and promotions in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook, like our Facebook page, and one last thing, please tell all of your friends by spreading the word about DogWorks Radio. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you. DogWorks Radio is produced by Robert Forto. Logo art by Angry Squirrel Studios. DogWorks Radio is produced in conjunction with KVRF 89.7 in Palmer, Alaska. For dog training advice, you can contact Alaska DogWorks at 907-841-1686 or visit their website at alaskadogworks.com. If you have a show idea or would like to be a guest, please contact us by sending an email to live at dogworksradio.com.